Church family, go ahead and turn with me to Leviticus chapter 11. We're going to read just a couple of verses this morning, um, not the whole thing. If you're a visitor and you're wondering why Leviticus, ask a friend. <laughs> we, have, uh, we have been studying this book um, for a couple months now, uh, and we know it's not a very popular book to preach through. We'll, we'll see a little bit of, of why that is this week, but especially next week. Um, but uh, it, is, um, it has been beneficial to us, I think, to grow closer to the Lord, to understand the need for holiness and uh, and this morning, we're going to be looking at ritual food laws before we feast. So, uh, the Lord just worked that out this way. We're going to read verses 43 uh, through 45 this morning, uh, which really is the heart of chapter 11. The Bible says, You shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creeps, nor shall you make yourselves unclean with them, lest you be defiled by them. For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth, for I am the Lord who brings you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word this morning. Father, we are humbled to be drawn into your presence this morning, to be brought to this place by your grace, to offer you a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, to to hear from your word, to consider the glories of the gospel, to be edified, strengthened, and encouraged. Even now we pray for that grace to hear and understand your word, Father, I I pray that it would be rightly divided and well communicated. And where that fails because of human frailty, I pray that you would not let us, let it distract us from our desire to know you and our desire to be changed by your word. Would your Holy Spirit impress this word upon our heart and we would be ever more transformed into the image of your Son, that our lives together might be holy, pleasing to you, that we might make much of your name that your Son might be exalted, that your Spirit might be obeyed. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, all the way back in 1975, uh, the Black Beret was officially authorized for wear by the newly created battalions of United States Army Rangers who had worn it unofficially during the Vietnam War. Everyone knew that if you saw a person in a military uniform and they were wearing a black beret, they were a ranger. In fact, they used to refer to them as the black berets, just like you could refer to the special forces as green berets. It was a way of distinguishing a group of military men from another wider group of military People. Well, in 2001, that changed. They began to issue them to all military folks so that everyone in the army could wear a black beret. But in a pretty significant way, I think what we read in Leviticus chapter 11 is very similar to that. Uh, we find here the food laws given to God's people by God to make them distinct or holy. Here's the big idea of Leviticus chapter 11. It is simply this. God's people are to be holy, set apart from the nations. God's people are to be holy, set apart from the nations. That's the big idea of the main text. But before we get into Leviticus chapter 11, I do want to start with some preliminary remarks that I think will be very helpful for us. And I think these are things that have to be made in order for us to understand this. The first is, uh, I want us to remember as we enter into chapter 11, as we consider those distinctions between clean, unclean, and holy, that what we're talking about is something called ritual states. Clean, unclean, unclean, unclean and holy are ritual states. This is something we talked about 
really all the way back in the introduction to Leviticus, which we started, I don't even know, January, I would presume, uh, but we haven't talked about since, so I think it's important that we make this clear. The distinction between clean, unclean, and holy, these are ritual states. And you're looking at me thinking, well, what is ritual state? Well, they're not to be confused with moral states. Uh, And what I mean by that is someone can be unclean and not be sinful. So as we see in chapter 11, someone can be defiled by touching a carcass, and that isn't equated to sin, and yet it still defiles them. It makes them unclean. It makes them in the ritual state of uncleanliness and Clear as mud? Well, let's use an analogy of physical cleanness in a hospital to help us. So, for example, this will help us wrap our minds about what I mean by this. Someone who is sick may not be allowed into a maternity ward to go and hold the babies, correct? They would be unclean. Someone who is healthy would be able to come in and visit someone and hold their child in the maternity ward. That would be a clean person. But that clean person could not walk out of the baby ward directly into the surgery ward where they are having surgery. No. At that point, someone would have to be sterilized, donned with the appropriate gear before they would be allowed into the surgery room. They would have to be holy. You understand? Okay. The other preliminary mark by way of introduction is, is what we see in Leviticus chapter 11 is what we call an accommodation. This is the Lord's accommodation. Uh, accommodation is a way of communicating with God's people that uses cultural realities to communicate the Lord's values. Okay, I should already warn you that if you are not a bulletin note taker and you write your own, you're going to want to grab a bulletin for some of these notes this morning, right? At least cheat off your neighbor if need be. So this is the Lord's accommodation. He's using a cultural reality to communicate the Lord's values. <laughs> See Miss Shelley grabbing a bulletin back there, right? Uh, Jay Sklar puts it like this. He says, accommodation refers to the fact That the Lord communicates his values to us in a way that we can understand, namely by using cultural realities that exist in our society. I'll say that one more time. Accommodation refers to the Lord's, the, the, the fact, excuse me, that the Lord communicates his values to us in a way that we can understand, namely by using cultural realities that exist in our society. That, this is what often makes what we read in Leviticus very strange to us, by the way. This idea of accommodation, mostly because the Lord is addressing practices and concepts that are really not necessarily part of our historical cultural context. Right, for instance, we saw last week in Leviticus chapter 10 about the prohibition of the priest to engage in grieving rites. That practice seems very harsh and strange to us. Aaron lost his sons, and and, and the Lord says you may not participate in these mourning, grieving rites. But in their historical context, we recognize those same grieving rites were part of the rituals that pagans performed. All of a sudden, that mandate or prohibition makes a little more sense to us. But it's the same idea with the concept of ritual states. If someone was to speak about ritual states to an Israelite in the ancient Near East, he would not have to explain what it was because it was a common practice in that day and time. He uses a cultural reality, but it's important to distinguish that just because the Lord uses a cultural reality does not mean that he's adopting their cultural values. We need to make a clear distinction between the two. Okay, so... Without further delay, let's dive into Leviticus chapter 11. Let me warn you up front. We're merely doing a quick survey of Leviticus 11. I'm I'm hoping that you've read it. Um, And if not, please do. But I hope you get the gist of what's here so we can look at it through a slightly different angle. What does Leviticus 11 say? Well, it starts with the Lord addressing Moses and Aaron. I do want to point this out before we move too quickly. The Lord only dresses them together, Moses and Aaron. He only dresses them together four times. And they're all found in Leviticus chapter 11 through 15. Why is that important? Well, because Leviticus 11 through 15 are those teachings about how Israel could maintain their state of ritual purity before the Lord. 
So similar to last week, the way the Lord addressed Aaron directly in chapter 10, the only time in all of Leviticus, and then goes on to say, listen, Aaron, you are to make a distinction between what is holy and what is common. Now, in the same way, throughout Leviticus 11 through 15, he's going to address Aaron and Moses together. Why? Because the role of the high priest in distinguishing and teaching the people these markers was of the utmost importance. Okay, so that's verse 1. There's, there's an introduction to address Israel about what living things they could and could not eat. This is actually the third time these food regulations have been given to us in Scripture. If you read that this week, if you got the reading, you should have noticed that. In Genesis chapter 1, God from the very beginning gives to mankind regulations about what they may or may not eat. Genesis 1.29, and God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth... In every tree whose fruit yields seed, to you it shall be for food. Then again, in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, the Lord speaks to Noah. He says to Noah, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Amen? I've given you all things, even as the green herbs, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So this is now the third time we we come to a food regulation that the Lord gives. Is that significant at all? I think it is. And if you're studying biblical theology, if you're thinking through what that means, you should know. I, I think that this means that we're obviously supposed to look at Israel as a new creation, a new start, a new humanity and the redemptive plan of God. Okay, let's pick up the pace. In verses 2 through 23, this is the Lord communicating what creatures may or may not be eaten by Israel. In verses 2 through 8, land animals. They must have a completely divided hoof and must chew the cud in order to be clean. That was the distinction that's made. That would include things like cattle, sheep, goat, deer. It would exclude camel, horses, hare, and rabbits. So for those of you who brought camel to eat today after homecoming, please... That's not for us today. Likewise, pigs would be excluded. You can still bring the pigs. Uh, they had a divided hoof, but they did not chew the cud. Okay? So in Old Testament, Old Covenant, we're going to get to why. We're going to enjoy Miss Pat's ham very soon. Uh, and that's okay, very soon. Okay? If you're worried, don't worry. I'm not taking away your bacon. All right? In 9 through 12, we find marine creatures that could or could not be eaten. Those who had fins and scales, those were considered clean. Israel could help themselves. Anything that does not have scales nor fins was unclean. It was to be, and we see this throughout, it was to be abominable to them. Flying creatures that Israel could not eat and insects they could eat are delineated in verses 13 through 23. Birds that are not to be eaten, there's a long list. And and the reality is, I told you this in grow class this week, most of these are really hard to designate in the Hebrew text. But your your Bibles give a, a good shot at it. Uh, but the point is, there's a, there's a long list of birds that were not to be eaten, and they were abominable to the Israelites. Flying insects, on the other hand, I know that we like to think of all of those as abominable. But no, actually, the ones with four legs and joints in their legs above their feet, locusts, grasshoppers, those kind of things, were all okay. In fact, Emmett and I spent all afternoon yesterday collecting some so we could try some tonight uh, at homecoming after. I'm just kidding. No, it's <laughs> Somebody in here is eating grasshopper. Y'all are in Callahan. Don't even lie. Um, All right. The rest were to be abominable to the Israelites. In verses 24 through 42, we find the cause of defilement and touching carcasses and how to remedy that defilement. And then finally, verses 43 through 45, the text we read, we find this call to holiness. Really, what we find here is the purpose of the entire chapter. It's broken down in three verses. Let's reread them together. Leviticus 11, verse 43, You shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing that creeps, nor shall you make yourself unclean with them, lest you be defiled by them. Notice, notice, by the way, he says here, you shall not make yourselves abominable. Because all throughout he has been saying, these animals, these marine animals, these particular birds, these insects, they are abominable to you. And, And why is that? Verse 44, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, and you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Then finally, in verses 46 and 47, we we find the summary 
of all that went on before in chapter 11. That's chapter 11 in a nutshell. What I want to do really quickly now is answer the question you might be thinking. What in the world did any of that accomplish? What's what's the purpose of that? What was the purpose of these particular food laws, the Lord's accommodation of expressing his values in a way that they can understand using cultural realities of the day? Well, uh, these are we're going to go through very quickly. The first is these ritual states in the food laws. Uh, they reinforced for the Israelites the understanding that the Lord is holy. We saw that, right? The Lord makes that very clear in the text. In fact, uh, Jay Sklar puts it like this. He says, All the laws related to ritual states were like the strokes of a pen, underlining again and again and again in a sentence, The Lord is holy. And so... This reinforced for the Israelites that understanding that the Lord is indeed holy. Second, it reinforced the idea that His holiness was supposed to impact every aspect of their lives. This is something we've seen over and over again through Leviticus and even the Old Testament. This idea, this understanding the Lord is holy was to impact every aspect of their lives. It was a constant reminder that the Lord wanted the Israelites to be holy in all of life. So the saying goes, from the kitchen to the bedroom to the boardroom, the Lord is God. Ritual states were not just a concept that were regulated to the area of spirituality. That's very important to keep in mind. It was supposed to permeate throughout their lives and remind them that what takes place in worship is not just in the synagogue. It's in every single day of their lives. Another purpose was the component that goes with that. And again, the main idea of our text. The Lord's people are to be set apart and are to be holy. Ritual states were were largely an elaborate and concrete lesson in holiness for God's people. Israelites were to be distinct because the Lord himself is distinct. They were to be set apart for his purposes. Ritual states were the outward expression of this pursuit of holiness in their lives. So these strict food regulations and laws, this was something that was not a common practice among people, among the nations. There have not been discovered in the ancient Near East anything that compares to the food laws to the extent that we find them in Leviticus chapter 11. This was unique, and it was meant to make Israel unique among the nations. The Lord is distinct, there is no one like them, and there should be no other people like His people. The goal is the holiness of God's people. You see... The the unclean, impure, marine animals, birds, and flying insects were to be abominable to the Israelites. And just to qualify that, that does not mean, for instance, that the eagle, which made the list of abominable birds, is actually dirty or unclean in any real sense. Or that the eagle is any less valued in the economy of God's kingdom. That's not what this is communicating. It's a teaching tool, not a commentary on nature. Again, the unclean, impure marine animals, birds, and flying insects were to be abominable to the Israelites, and Israel was not to become abominable to the Lord, nor was Israel to be defiled or unclean. In fact, look at Leviticus chapter 20. If, if it's not clear in Leviticus 11, it's painfully clear in Leviticus chapter 20. It's inescapable. In verse 24, But I've said to you, you shall inherit their land, And I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. The the Lord had separated the Israelites, chosen them from among all the peoples, rescued them from Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai. He made a special covenant with them, bound himself to them, and now he set them apart. Now, if, if we had started at verse 22 of Leviticus 20, you would have read the Lord's warning is is not to become abominable to him that the land might vomit them out. The same way it's about to vomit out the Canaanites who are currently dwelling in that land. And how are they to accomplish this? Right? So God says, you are to be holy, I've made you holy, but more specifically, how? What are we to do? The only thing mentioned here in Leviticus 20 is this. You shall therefore distinguish between clean animals and unclean, between unclean birds and clean And you shall not make yourselves abominable by beast or by bird or by any kind of living thing that creeps on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean. And you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the people that you should be mine. So so here the Lord is very specifically saying, 
I've separated you unto myself. I've made you holy. So be distinguished between all other peoples. And, and you are to do so at least by one of these primary ways, which are the food laws. These food laws are ultimately about holiness, separated into the Lord of God's redemptive purposes. And if we struggle to see that, right, which we, which we do, we don't really comprehend that. If we struggle to see that, then we must note that this is certainly how the Israelites of Jesus' day understood these laws. Right? Uh, they, they understood that these food laws made them distinct. In fact, the three most important outward markers for an Israelite would be circumcision, observant of the Sabbath, and these food laws. God had given those to Israel like a black beret to identify them as his people. Now, I want us to look at the redemptive historical context. And here's why. Because unfortunately, in Jesus' day, these outward external markers had become a great source of pride. And the redemptive focus had all but been lost from their view. I want, to, I want us to help see that through the eyes of Jesus himself. To understand that this is the world to which Jesus was born, and these are the words that he grew up on. This was his Bible, by the way. Chapter 11 of Leviticus, which we read, he grew up on this. <laughs> Jesus grew up observing the food laws. That's an important thing to know. Jesus observed, grew up observing the food laws. He obeyed them to a T, which means Jesus never had bacon. You want to talk about self-sacrificial love, right? Listen, I, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. If you're a person that doesn't care for bacon, I, don't, I just don't see a pathway to our friendship. I, don't, I love you, I just I don't understand it. Uh, but to know that Jesus, who created all things, according to Colossians 1, right, knew how wonderful bacon tastes, and yet willingly not only lived his life as a man here on earth, but lived it without that glorious, crispy meat, it's a sacrifice in itself. But he observed the food laws to a T, never disobeyed them. What a sacrifice. <laughs> because the law of God prohibited it. We also need to know that not only did... Jesus grew up observing the food laws, but Jesus knew his Hebrew Bible. Now, he wowed the teachers of the temple at 12 years of age because of his knowledge of God's word. I, I think it's safe to say Jesus knew and understood the book of Leviticus better than anyone else. Would you agree? And here's why I need to say this, because obviously you're thinking, duh. But, but we're so quick to think of Jesus in terms of, of God, and he is fully God but remember, he lived his life here on earth in the form of a man. Which means he came to these scriptures needing to learn from them, and he did. He grew in his understanding of them. He grew in knowledge, and by the time Jesus began his earthly ministry, Jesus came to see that the food laws were temporary. That's what he says in his early ministry, that Jesus came to see that the food laws were, in fact, temporary. They were not necessary. In fact, all of the old markers were to be set aside through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension. That's the third, third one, by the way. That's C in redemptive historical context. Jesus came to see the food laws were temporary. So, so Jesus would teach that eating certain animals did not actually make someone unclean, undefiled, and abominable. The food laws were themselves a tutor to teach about a deeper spiritual reality that Jesus likely first learned from his Hebrew Bible. And that spiritual reality was a need for a deeper holiness, for a moral purity. It went beyond external outward rites. See, the problem was not the animals that they ate. The problem with Israel, as we all know, was their unclean hearts. What comes out of a person's unclean heart is what makes a person abominable before God. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that the food laws could not make the heart well. They couldn't. The food laws could not make the heart well. And listen, Jesus didn't just read Leviticus, did he? he he's read Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? 
Jesus read Isaiah. His own people would draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me. Isaiah 29, 13. He knew Ecclesiastes where it says in Ecclesiastes 8, 11, Truly the hearts of the Son of Men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead. Ultimately, the food regulations could not fix the problem. It could not bring the restoration that Israel and the rest of mankind desperately needed. Food laws could no more make someone holy than the blood of bulls and goats could cleanse away sin. So just like the sacrifices, the food laws anticipated something greater. They anticipated the fulfillment of the promise of holiness for God's people. They anticipated this, but... But they didn't deliver, nor could they deliver. The promise from Genesis 3.15 that God would crush the accuser of God's people by the seed of Eve. The promise that all people would be blessed through the seed of Abraham. A faithful Israelite who would fulfill Israel's calling to be holy. Set apart unto the Lord with all of one's heart, soul, mind, and strength. A faithful Israelite who would not be merely ritually clean, but morally pure. A faithful Israelite who was not undefiled because of what he ate, but because of the good things that came out of his heart. And mouth. See, Jesus understood that this was Israel's mission. They were to be faithful, holy among God's people, among the nations. And in addition, by Jesus' time, it was clear that the, the Pharisees and the scribes had completely missed this lesson. And instead of obeying the law with, with humble trust in the faithful God who actually gave it to them, the Pharisees and scribe made, made the law a means of righteousness. In fact, as, as Paul would later write in Romans chapter 10 about his kinsmen, he would say, They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. They were zealous for the law, but in their zeal, they missed the lessons the law taught. They they missed the anti-type for the type. They missed the reality for the shadow. The law should have resulted in humble faith and eager anticipation, but instead, pride was the primary marker. Obedience to God's law had been replaced with obedience to man's traditions. But Jesus understood that His holiness was to serve God's redemptive plan. Jesus recognized the food laws would no longer serve as a marker for God's people when his redemptive work was complete. And here's where I really... Do me a favor and turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. This is such a beautiful picture. Here Jesus in Matthew 15, he's he's out, he's sparring with the, the scribes and the Pharisees. The ones who have set aside God's word in favor of what men teach. Jesus is condemning and, and rebuking them for this and... And after doing so, this happens in Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 10. The text says, When he had called the multitude to himself, he said to them, Hear and understand. Verse 11. Not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a man. Then his disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? They say, Jesus, you're such a wise teacher, you you probably could have used a little bit more tact there. He responds down in verse 17, look what he says. Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and it's eliminated? It's a pretty graphic picture in verse 18. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. In the Gospel of Mark, it adds when he said these things, he purified all foods. He set aside the food laws because in reality, he, he was getting ready to blow up their whole concept of ritual purity. He was getting ready to make that which was external, internal. He was getting ready to teach a very difficult lesson to the disciples. And in doing so, he realized that his words right here, they they just weren't enough. So so just like any good teacher, he decides it's time for a field trip. So if you continue to read in Matthew 15, he he takes his disciples on that field trip to the land of Tyre and Sidon. 
this very Gentile, unclean region. And there they meet a Syrophoenician woman. Now, they would never eat with a Gentile. But, but this woman, this Gentile woman, comes up and, and to the table and she's just hounding Jesus to heal her demon-possessed daughter. She's relentlessly pursuing him and, and the disciples are, are besides themselves. I mean, it's been a long walk. They're, they're hungry. They're just trying to enjoy some R&R with, with Jesus. They beg Jesus, Jesus, get rid of her, will you? She's unclean. They don't say that, but that's how they look at her. And here's the thing. Jesus obliges their demand. He tells her to go. In fact, here's what he says to her. He says, it's not right for me to take food from the children in order to feed their dogs. I mean, you could just imagine the disciples think, oh, what did he just say? Oh, Jesus, man, you told her, that's right, get out of here. But she actually refuses to go. She retorts, Yes, but even the dogs get to eat the scraps from the table. Again, just imagine the disciples being taken back, saying, Well, that was quick. <laughs> she may be unclean, but at least she's witty. But, but Jesus, no, no, no. Jesus, all right, you heard that, Jesus? You're about to put her in her place, aren't you? I mean, listen, this is Jesus, the Christ. He has never been verbally bested by anyone. I mean, in verbal combat, Jesus stays winning, right? All day long. The Pharisees, scribes, wise of Israel, they cannot possibly compete with Jesus' knowledge in his vernacular. Here, this unclean, likely uneducated woman with a demon-possessed daughter, she dares to defy Jesus' command and to leave their presence. But, but instead, Jesus replies, O woman, great is your faith. I mean, the disciples just had to fall out of their chairs, Right? I don't know if they had chairs, but if they did, they probably fell out of them. The point is, there could not be here a stronger, more concrete lesson in the reversal that Jesus was currently making. The disciples, time and time again, were referred to as those of little faith. The very holiest among all of Israel, the Pharisees and scribes, were constantly being called unclean and defiled by the Messiah. And yet here they are in the region of Tyre Sidon with a Syrophoenician woman, a Sabbath-breaking, bacon-eating, uncircumcised Gentile from the twin cities that were compared to Sodom and Gomorrah, and she's clean? That's incredible. The disciples found her abominable. Jesus refers to her as one of great faith. See, for this very reason, the food laws had to be set aside. The external types and shadows were replaced by the anti-type and reality of a clean heart. The external types and shadows were replaced by the anti-type and reality of a clean heart. The holiness that Jesus would provide would go beyond external rituals, geographic boundaries, and ethnic distinctions. It would get to the heart of the matter. He would provide the circumcision of the heart that the rest of the world is waiting for. The reality is, hear this, even though he never ate an abominable animal, Jesus became abominable to God for our sake. That's the gospel. We were abominable in the sake of God, every one of us, especially if you're a Gentile. You were separated from the covenant of promise without hope in this world. But Christ became abominable for us. Christ died for our sins, cleansed us from our defilement to make us no longer abominable to God, but beloved children. And so it would no longer be circumcision, Sabbath, or food laws that would distinguish a person being holy as set apart. It would be their trust in Jesus Christ. Listen, Jesus doesn't do away with the categories. He fulfills the laws, replaces the shadows... And transforms the types. All that the markers pointed towards were fulfilled in Christ. And so, clean and unclean are no longer dependent on ritual purity. 
Clean and unclean are dependent upon faith and repentance. Clean and unclean are no longer dependent on ritual purity, but on faith and repentance. And this this may seem very obvious to us with all of our, our Gentile background being so far removed from that first century historical culture. But we need to understand how difficult this was for the early church to accept this. The New Testament bears witness to that fact. Listen, even after the lesson from the mouth of Jesus and the demonstration on the field trip with the Syrophoenician woman, it would still take a a vision in Joppa for Peter to come close to embracing the fact that all food was made clean. Meaning even the Gentiles had been made clean. And and even after the vision in Acts 10 and and the conversion of all these God-fearing Gentiles, Peter really struggled to put in practice that which was revealed to him. I mean, don't we read in Galatians about Paul having to rebuke Peter? Why? For withdrawing from table fellowship with the Gentiles. I mean, Peter was there. He saw the lesson. He saw the vision. He heard these things. He had to be part of the Jerusalem council, and yet in Galatians, we still see this. Peter knew the Lord had made all food clean, but he still struggled. He'd have to be sternly rebuked for getting out of step with the gospel, as Paul puts it. And here's why we've got to mention this. Because, because here we have before us a million-dollar question. Can we apply Leviticus chapter 11 without falling into a subtle, similar error? I, I mean, look, even with everything I brought before you, There are still those who follow the food laws. There are still those who believe we should be following certain laws in regards to what we eat and don't eat, as clear as it is from the scriptures that that has been set aside. And so can we attempt to apply chapter 11 without falling into a subtle but similar error? I say yes. Not only can we, but we have to. And if we're going to do so, then we need to keep in mind two warnings. Two warnings. And and the first is this. The first is our default position is law. You need to know that. Our default position is law. We are wired for law. Made for law. And, And we actually... Prefer it. As silly as that might sound, yes, we all love bacon, but but deep down, we desire to earn God's favor. We desire to believe that we are better than others. We desire to believe God has shown me grace because something He saw in me. And so there's always a temptation before us to give up bacon, metaphorically speaking, of course, in order to prove that we're better than other people. And when given the opportunity and unchecked by the Holy Spirit, we have to understand that we love to revert to the law. Just like Peter, we can trust in Christ while falling back into our old attempts of self-righteousness. So listen, I'm, I'm holy because I wore a tie to church this morning. Well, not me, but some of you might feel that way. I'm holy because back in my day, my kids sat still in church meetings. I'm holy because fill in the blank. And if that blank is filled in with anything other than I'm holy because I trust in Christ, then you're already there and you don't even know it. Friends, we have to recognize the first warning is that our default position is law. Warning number two is this. Warning number two is we cannot live like we're unclean. We just can't. So Jesus set aside the food laws. That is clear. He did not set aside God's mandate for his people to be holy. That's equally clear. Paul the Apostle to God's grace in Christ wrote this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7 1. He says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, pursue, pursue peace with all people and holiness. Without which, no one will see the Lord. The mandate still stands. That command is still repeated. Remember, we know that Old Testament commands apply to us if they're repeated in the New Testament. This is clear. We are called to be no less holy than Israel. So so here's the problem. is If we avoid legalism on the right, then we're immediately prone to fall headlong into lawlessness on the left. 
Christ set aside those external markers, circumcision, Sabbath observance, food laws, but he didn't set them aside to call us to something less, but to call us to something more. That's what we miss. We're not identified by the circumcision of our flesh, but we are and should be identified by the circumcision of our hearts. That we actually have a heart that wants to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth to obey His commands, serve Him, and be wholly devoted to Him. See, the call to holiness here, it isn't smaller, it's actually larger. And why shouldn't it be? We have the Spirit of God and work with us. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is at work within us. And so we're no longer set apart by what we eat. But we feed on Christ. We are set apart as those who follow a crucified Savior. So, so what do we do? Like if there's, if there's danger on the left and there's danger on the right, then, then how do we manage this? How do we respond to this? Well, here's what I want to do. I want to give you two brief examples, and they're probably equally controversial, and I may get some slack for this, but, but try to hear the heart of this, okay? Because here's a, a two ed- examples, one in the realm of education and one in the area of entertainment. Please listen. Looking back... To the law in regards to education would say this. Would say something to the fact of, you know what? I am holy because I homeschool. That makes me distinct, special, better. So that's legalism. Lawlessness, on the other hand, would say, how my kids are educated doesn't matter. A biblical pursuit of holiness in the middle of here, and this is what we want, would desire to know what God values. And God values truth. Any education that is built on the presupposition that truth is irrelevant or neutral is anti-Christ. So pursuing holiness would say, I will provide or engage in an education that grounds all learning in the reality of God's creative, sovereign work and his essential involvement with his creation. Does that mean I must homeschool? No, but I must understand that it matters what schools my children go to, who my children's teachers are, and what their grasp and reality is on the concept of truth, especially in this day and age. If you don't think that we're at war, friends, if you don't think that spiritual warfare is at hand, let me encourage you to listen to Brother Brad's sermon a couple weeks ago. We are, and they are after our children. Guess what? This isn't a new thing. The devil's been after our children since the very beginning. It's becoming more clear and more embraced in our culture. So friends, it doesn't matter what your views on or even ability on homeschooling or public school is. Be involved. Recognize that you are the one who's responsible for your child's education. And who you give that over to is also your responsibility. Be involved. That was probably the the more controversial of the two, I think. So we got that one out of the way. I'm sorry. But listen to this. Entertainment. The law would say this in entertainment. I'm holy because I don't watch TV. In fact, I don't even own a TV. Have it in my house. Lawlessness would say, me and my family can watch whatever we want. Because Jesus died for my sins. So what I watch, doesn't matter. I'm free to indulge in whatever this world produces to entertain me. Biblical pursuit of holiness knows that God values moral purity. Entertainment that promotes immorality by calling evil good and good evil, even if it's in a joking manner, in the biblical pursuit of holiness, it will be identified for exactly what it is. I will honor my God and Savior with my leisure time, says one who is in a pursuit of biblical holiness. We talked about this Wednesday night, friends. The encouragement is, I I hope... Listen, the days are gone when you are able, it really should have never existed, when you are able to sit any one of your children in front of a screen unsupervised, those days are gone. I love you, and I say this in biblical truth. Um, you need to be involved, even in the area of entertainment. If that means that you've watched every single episode of Bluey 15 times, that's okay. Because I, I would much rather make sure that my children are guarded than not. This is what the pursuit of biblical reality looks like. And listen, that doesn't make you holy. But it also doesn't mean that it doesn't matter. We have to find the middle ground here. And ultimately, church, here's what we do. We pray together. And we pray that God would make us holy. 
He has set us apart. So let us strive to be set apart and let's pray towards that end. Praise God that remember what holiness is. It's God's work. Right? It's His work in us and we fulfill that call. And and praise God for those who are in Christ, we have the promise to know that that which He began in you, He will complete in the day of salvation. Let's stand as we close together in a word of prayer. Gracious Father, we love you. Lord, we, we desperately need to hear this word. We thank you that we are no longer bound by the external rituals that once designated a person as clean or unclean. But instead, in Christ, we've been free to worship you in spirit and in truth. We've been freed to draw near to the most holy place with confidence. Those formerly separated are now children invited into your presence to offer you a sacrifice of praise. Lord, what an overwhelming thought. Lord, would you forgive us where we've set aside your mandate for holiness? Would you forgive us where we have abused Christ's calling and the grace given to us in him to indulge in all sorts of things that are displeasing to you? Father, we pray that you purify us, heart, mind, and soul, that we might serve you in a way that honors you, that we might be holy, that we would appear odd to this culture that in so many ways is growing in their boldness in its hatred for you. We pray for strength in these evil times. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing this hymn of reflection together. As we come now to the time of of invitation this morning, I hope it's... um, it's clear that, look, primarily, as we know the Old Covenant Israel is a picture of the New Testament church, that so this really is and was a message for believers. And this is something we walk through on a, a day-by-day basis. I don't know about you, but it seems like every time I, I strive for holiness, I'm immediately in danger of legalism. And every time I try and, and rest a little bit more and be free in Christ, I'm immediately in danger of lawlessness, right? It is a, it is a tough road. Whoever said this Christian life was was easy, yet was, is either a legalist or lawless. Um, and so uh, I, I think certainly what is our hope? Our hope is the one who keeps us. Our hope is hearing this very truth and being recognizing of the dangers that are among us. Our hope is that we share in this life together as the family of God to be able to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to recognize that yes, you may be walking and teetering on this, this path both back and forth in danger of falling into either ditch, but you do not walk alone. You have the Spirit of God who is pulling you forward and who is strong and mighty indeed in order to help you walk the life that you know you should live. And you have brothers and sisters who are surrounding you, whose prayers are pushing behind you to help encourage you to finish strong. What a hope that is, isn't it, Christian? What a glory that is. And so we celebrate God's goodness and then we, we merely just ask Him for more faithfulness in whatever area we struggle with. I've never met a single person who does not either struggle with legalism or lawlessness. I'm one, I think I've struggled both. Like I feel like I've had certain seasons where it's either one or the other. But friends, praise God that the work that Jesus began in me, He will complete. Praise God that again, my salvation is tied to His righteousness. And, and all this journey is, this walking, it is, a, it is a wanting and a desire for more of Him. It is a desire to be that which He's called me to be, and that is holy. So praise God that He's the one who does the work as we seek to be faithful to work. Um, and so if you're not a Christian here this morning, then, then understand this is something you by nature can't do. You can't, on your own, earn God's favor by your good works and just trying to be good by some sort of external truth marker that you've set for yourself. Friends, you can't. You will never be able to cover the amount of sin that you need to be atoned for. See, the Bible is very clear. God created all of these things. He created heaven and earth and all that is in it. He owns it. Therefore, He's ruler over it. He created man to be the chief of all of His creation. Man had a special relationship with God. They were made in His image. So they walked with Him as we saw in our kids' time. Adam and Eve, they, they walked with God. And yet, as we'll see next week in our kids' time, they rejected and rebelled against that good and holy God's design by sinning and living for their own righteousness and trying by their own merit to be God. They exchanged the worship of the Creator for the worship of the creature. And you were born into that very nature. We all have lived in that very same nature. We know the temptation to worship the creation and not the Creator. 
The problem with that is that's called sin. It's a flat-out rejection of the God who designed this world for His glory and our good. And because of that sin, we are deserving, therefore, of a just punishment. And, And the God who created, who owns all things, who rules over the world, has decided that this punishment is death. It's separation from Him, an inability to come to Him on our own terms. And and therefore, a, a threat to be separated eternally from Him, apart from someone paying for the sin which we committed. And praise God that the very one who determines this just penalty is the very one who came to pay it. Jesus Christ, God's Son, fully God and fully man, came to live the perfect life that you could not live. He earned the righteousness that you could never earn by His perfect obedience. Everything that flowed out of His mouth and heart was indeed clean. So He purchased for us a righteousness that we need in order to approach our Creator. And then He took upon Himself the very wrath that we earned and deserved for our sin. He bore it. But He didn't stay dead. If He had stayed dead, then surely we would mourn and say, Good effort, nice try. But He busted up out of the grave alive. And He stands alive today at the Father's right hand, having purchased for His people true, utter, and eternal salvation. And if you belong to Christ, if you want to belong to Christ, if the heart has been stirred in any way, just recognize that what you must do is repent of your sin. Repent of your idea of being God of your own life. That which you were created or thought through by nature and turn away as Jesus being your Lord. Confess those sins to Him. He's faithful and just to cleanse you of your sin. Give you all righteousness. Turn by faith to Jesus today. You must repent and you must believe. Not just in the external facts about the gospel, the Lord's finished work on the cross and His resurrection, but you must trust and rest in them as your only hope for salvation. If you're here this morning and you've never done that, you've never repented of your sins and have trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ, then please make today the day of salvation. We would love to share more about uh, this with this gospel for you. Listen, it's very simple. There's not some prayer you have to repeat. You simply have to say, Lord... I recognize. I, I want to repent and believe. Lord, I, I'm a sinner. I, I need you. Lord, save me. And he's faithful to do it. He will not turn no one away who comes to him with a true heart confessing their sin and acknowledging their need for redemption. So if you're here this morning, just call out to Christ and he can save you right there where you sit. On a Sunday morning on year 66 of First Baptist Church of Greg Gables anniversary. If the Lord's working in this way, I pray that he does. And for those of us who are in Christ, I pray that we have this strong, sure assurance of the love we have for one another.